Hello. Welcome back to Mathematically Speaking. I'm your host, Adam Allred. I apologize for being slow to release new episodes this season. If I'm being honest, this past summer was unbelievably difficult and was not able to write nearly as much as I would have hoped. Then graduate school is a brute as always, and having it online does not make it any easier. And this season is not that is not as easy to make as I thought it was. I'm, I'm caught up trying to do justice to these parts of the world and their contributions while managing that much research and also releasing episodes in a timely fashion. So if episodes are slow to be released for some time, then be patient, and I'm sorry. When I have more free weekends, then I'll be sure to crank out an episode if I can. So with that, let's begin. Today's the day. We finally get to talk about the number pi. This is a number that floats around in a, a lot in pop culture, and is sometimes people's only math knowledge that sticks. It often brings people to the subject since it can be so interesting and mysterious, and many people spend their entire life trying to find more digits of it. But before we can talk about this amazing number, we need to talk about the man who gave us one of the first highly accurate approximations for it, Aryabhata. At age 23, he wrote his first text, the Aryabhatiya. It was composed into 118 verses with 33 of them being math and the rest of them being astronomy, building off of that math in the previous uh, 33. The 33 verses of math were the total of all mathematical knowledge that was possessed up until him. He also invented a system for number representation based on the 33 consonants of his alphabet which allowed for numbers as large as 10 to the 18th. This helped develop the place value system more to what we know of today. And if you remember the episode of Ptolemy, we had the idea of chords, uh, chords of an angle, which was the beginning of trigonometry. Here we see more of it. Aryabhata gave us, the, gave us the half chord, which we know today as the sine function. We only call it the sine function because of a mistranslation. Calling them half chords would be much less confusing, especially when we need to talk about the positivity or negativity of the sine function. Right now we're just saying the sine of sine, and that, can, as, that sounds silly. Uh, moving along, along with the creation of the function itself, he also built a table of values using some of the original trig identities. Starting now, we have the full foundations of trigonometry, a subclass of geometry that is entirely dedicated to triangles. Hopefully it's easy to see why this kind of math was developed. Here in India, astronomers and mathematicians go hand in hand, especially at this point in history. And if you remember, astronomy was important to the religion of this region. If you wanted to estimate the distance between celestial bodies using a reference point, then a triangle to relate the angle at which you are measuring and the distance between and the distance between the two things you're measuring would be the simplest way to do so. I mentioned that he used a table to make these calculations. How did he make these tables? In the same way your calculator gives you an answer when you punch in sine of an angle, cosine of, cosine of an angle, tangent of an angle. It's just arithmetic. The kind of arithmetic that you could do with the pencil and paper. Multiplication and addition repeated over and over and over again in different variations. The stuff that we started with in season one. Your brain is capable of the same type of computation that your calculator is, or even a computer. The only difference is speed. But the kind of computation is identical. It's all arithmetic. 
I want you to try to briefly describe how this works. And we'll be returning to this later this returning to it later this season and then another time when we get to Europe. But the sine function is a wave. Starts at zero, goes to one, back down to zero, down to negative one, and back up to zero, and then it repeats. Some values are nice and easy to find, but most are not. So what do we do? We want to find those not so nice values. We start with a line and place it on the sine curve at the value that we want. It'd be a pretty awful estimate as the sine curve and a line look nothing alike. So let's go from linear to quadratic. Well, it would be a little bit better. There's at least a curve there. Well, we could go cubic and quartic and then quintic. We could raise the degree of the polynomial as high as we would like until we get approximation that is best. Geometrically, the polynomial would get as many curves as the sine function has until it looks identical. That's how these tables were made, by some fancy arithmetic, by taking a polynomial, increasing its degree, until we get what we want. So while the arithmetic may be simple, it's incredibly powerful. Lastly, from him, we get some of the earliest solutions to linear Diophantine equations that take the form of ax plus by equals c with a, b, and c constants. The method for solving was developed by someone else, so we're not going to go into it here, but we'll get to it soon. But we've already kind of seen this method from the Euclid's algorithm. If we solve this, then we get the greatest common denominator for a and b. Doing this, you find a common unit to measure the period of the planets, which uh, just means how long it takes for them to travel around the sun. So the Earth's period is 365 days, Mercury is 88 Earth days, etc. In the second chapter of his book, we read his formula for the area of a circle. Half of the, half of the circumference times half of the diameter is the area of a circle. Simple enough. Using this, he gives an approximation for the circumference of the Earth, 62,832 miles, and an approximation pi. His method is add 4 to 100, multiply by 8, and then add 62,000. This result is approximately the circumference of a circle of diameter 20,000. There are no numerical symbols here, by the way. All of his math is written out word by word. If you do that division, you get 3.1416 exactly. This fraction is accurate, uh, is accurate to pi up to 10 to the negative fourth. Today we have trillions of digits of pi using supercomputers doing the calculations, but why does anyone care so much about this one number? Why has this number shown up everywhere since math started being recorded? Some people are just interested in the number on its own, but others think it shows a geometry, a geometric structure to reality. So the simple definition of pi is the ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter. We've spoken before about how fractions are ratios. Well, so pi, is pi a fraction? Even though all of its approximations are, pi itself is not. Pi is special. It is irrational and transcendental. Irrational means that it can't be written as a fraction. There are way more irrational numbers than there are rational ones. If you think about the length from 0 to 1, it obviously has just size 1. But that length can be broken up into sets of numbers, the rational ones and the irrational ones. And the split between them is not 50-50, it's more like 0 to 1. 
the size or the measure of the set that is the rational numbers is functionally zero. There's basically no rational numbers compared to irrational ones on the continuum of zero to one. So the irrational numbers must make up the rest of the distance. So not only is not only is pi irrational, it's not it's not only one of those infinitely many more numbers than rational numbers, pi is also transcendental. And all that means, it's a fancy word, for the root of a polynomial with rational coefficients. If you take a polynomial, rational coefficients mean the constant terms that multiply to each piece are fractions or whole numbers, plug in pi, you'll never get a zero. And I want to make a note that using the Greek letter pi, like we do now, for this number was not established until the 18th century mathemat Swedish, math Swedish mathematician Euler. Up until then, people just used the ratio between the circumference and the diameter of the circle that they were dealing with. So if it can't be written as a fraction, and its root isn't the isn't, and it isn't a root of any rational polynomial, then we're only really left with approximations. But there are so, so many more ways to talk about pi than just the ratio between a circumference of a circle and its diameter. So let's talk about those. First, if you take the integral from negative 1 to positive 1 of the square root of 1 minus x squared, you get pi. Now, if you're familiar with integral calculus, I hope this as being an alternative definition for pi is clear. If not, then let me explain. That function, the square root of 1 minus x squared, is the top half of a circle with radius 1, centered around just 0, 0. If you put it on the xy coordinate system, the middle center of that cir circle around there, this thing goes from negative 1 to 1. The integral means that you want to find the area that is bounded by the function you are working with inside of a specified region. In this case, that region is negative 1 to positive 1. This is the area of half of a unit circle. The area of this thing is pi. Pi is the ratio between the circumference and the diameter of a circle. We have half a circle, so we get to half a circumference, and we have a diameter of 2. All that's left is pi. So is pi, pi not only the, ra like the ratio between a circumference and a diameter, it's also the area of the thing that we're dealing with. What if we have defined it as a relationship with trig functions? Well, then pi is also twice the smallest value, where cosine is 0. Well, this makes sense as well. Cosine starts at 1 and drops to 0. It takes the value of 0 when it hits pi over 2, half of pi. Twice of half of pi is just pi. So the ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter is twice the smallest value, where cosine equals 0. How about we add and subtract infinitely many numbers until we get a quarter of pi? First developed by the Indian mathematician Marhama and separately formalized by Leibniz, the alternating series of the reciprocals of the odd numbers gives you pi over 4. And all that means is 1 minus a third plus a fifth minus a seventh ad infimum gets you a quarter of pi. Combining this and the original definition means that the ratio between the circumference of a circle and its diameter is four times the alternating sum between 
uh, the alternating sum and difference between all unit fractions with odd numbers in their denominator. We can go from an infinite sum to an infinite fraction and still get pi. The fraction 3 plus 1, the, the fraction 3 plus 1 over 7 plus 1 over 15 will also get us pi. Now that should, remember, all, so a repeated fraction like this, an infinite fraction, everything's under one big, like it's, it's 3 plus and then fraction bar, 1 over 7 plus, another fraction bar under that first fraction bar. Fraction bar just keeps getting smaller and smaller, you're adding on smaller and smaller pieces. It also gets us pi. Super simple number. Be written countless ways connecting all sorts of different kinds of math. And we need it. If we want to make cosmological computations, we need a few hundred digits of pi to avoid any significant round-off error. Pi is in many of the constants in physics. Most of Maxwell's equations for electrostatics and magnetism have a constant that involves pi. So what is this inherently geometric number doing in so many descriptions of the natural world? Well, there are two possible explanations. One is boring. It's that the number works. Simple as that. The other is much more fun. It's a look behind the fabric of reality. What if reality that we live in is geometric? What if symmetry and beauty are fundamental mathematical part of the world around us. When I say geometric, I don't mean circles and squares. What if the world we see is a geometric representation of the connection being between topology and algebra? And since it, is, since it has this nature, we're able to interpret it and model it with the beautiful language that we have created. And I hope you don't shrug this off as just a what-if ramble. Because mysticism and wonder and awe seem to be in short supply recently. And maybe thinking that we live in this mystical world of geometric figures and algebraic structures is enough to bring that back for you. It may not be true, but does that matter? We could have invented this entire subject, parts of it, uh, and parts of it are where, are where they are because it works, because they have to be there. But does it matter? If you believe a thing and it's not true, does it matter that it's not true? People thinking that math is fundamental building block of reality, and that beauty and symmetry is part of it, gave us some of the most important things that make us human. It gave us some of the greatest paintings ever. Da Vinci's Last Supper is riddled with the golden ratio. Filled with it. It gave us tech that makes us virtually mathematicians. I'm speaking into a thing, and you are hearing it in the future. There is some credit to be given for the ability to wonder and to be in awe, and maybe Pi is a glimpse into that kind of wonder. This has been Mathematically Speaking. Thank you for listening. Hope to see you soon.